the Dish Pig. I'm your host, Nick Sherry. You know, Anthony Bourdain once said, I'm not afraid to look like an idiot. And that is what the Dish Pig is all about. This is the first episode. A big thanks to Aaron A. Aaron Drake out of Los Angeles for our theme song. Brilliant work, mate. I'm incredibly excited to be bringing this podcast to life where we're going to delve into all things food and booze. You know, food and drink make up a big part of our lives. I know, uh, I know it does for me. And each week, I will talk to guests from all corners of the culinary world, whether it's chefs, restaurateurs, distillers, winemakers, produce growers, bakers, bartenders, brewers, even blokes that sell firewood. And we're going to see what inspires their vision, their products, their service, and creativity. Now, I'm not an expert, but I'm passionate. And we're going to talk to some real experts as we go on a journey of discovery in the food and booze world. So if you want to discover with me, learn and laugh as we meet the people behind the scenes, this podcast is for you. So this week I sat down with someone I know very, very well, James Sherry, the co-founder of the independent craft spirit company, Tequila Tromba. So let's jump in. Jim. <laughs> James Sherry. That's me. Uh, full full disclosure, we are related. That's right. Almost my entire life. And definitely in the entirety of your life. That's true. That's true. Um, older brother by two years. Yep. Um, what was the last thing you cooked for yourself? Last thing I cooked for myself... Um, I made some chicken and orzo soup. Right. It's bloody delicious, actually. What's in that? So, besides chicken and Besides chicken orzo. and orzo. Oh, this is the one with, uh, with, with plenty of ginger, right? No, no, no. That's a different soup. I make a lot of soup. Um, I find that um, soup's pretty good on a hangover. Right. It's very good to freeze. <laughs> very easy to get home late at night and heat up some soup. So what was in it? Yeah, I think it was, it was pretty basic: uh, chicken thighs, um, leeks, celery, some chicken stock, and a bunch of dill. And you finished off with a bit of uh, lemon too. Oh, delish! That's oh, nice. Always got to be thighs. You can't go can't go white meat. Well, that chicken curry soup we've been eating our entire lives is is cut up chicken breast. Yeah, but imagine if. What would it be like if it was chicken thighs? <laughs> Pretty handy, I'm sure. That that recipe calls for a whole chicken. You know that, right? Did not know that. Have you ever made soup with a whole chicken? Uh, no. All right, so I made this um, pretty old school um, chicken and vegetable noodle soup last year. It took me like five hours to make. It was ridiculous. It's basically like making chicken stock with a whole chicken removing the chicken, breaking down the sort of boiled chicken, mm. straining all the uh, all the ingredients out 
So you got the stock shredding up the chicken and then like boiling more vegetables into mm-hmm. the already made chicken stock. It was bloody tasty, but it took forever. But last year we had a lot of time on our hands. So it's true. Well, we're, we're not really here to talk about soup, are we? Why not? Soup's great. Soup is delicious. It is good for the hangover. Bit of chili, bit of ginger, bit of bit of spice, bit of heat. Yeah. Soup sweats. for breakfast is uh, underrated, I think. Actually, speaking of soup and hangovers, I was in um, I was in Seoul on a work trip this one time, and the night before, um, just raging, raging drunk, lots of beer, lots of soju. Um, clients took me out, a lot of fun, but I had a another client meeting the next day. Well, it was a lunch meeting, but I woke up rather late. Um, terribly, terribly hungover, quite sick, you know, in the, in the stomach, a bit nauseous. Um, was very, very close to calling up the client and saying, look, I can't come, can't make it. It would have been very, very bad form, but I managed to drag myself out of bed, showered, dressed, got to the meeting, got to the meeting on time. The restaurant that we were going, going to go to was closed. So I'm like, oh, so we're like walking around this neighborhood. I'm just about to, I'm about to die. Anyway, we find a spot, sit down, and he orders this huge kind of – I don't remember what the dish was called, but it was it was a huge soup that you could just, you know, like you just, the ladles in the middle. Like was, a hot you, pot. Yeah, like a hot pot, yeah. And by about halfway through eating this soup, my it was gone. My hangover was gone. It, it, it turned me around. That's amazing. It was, um, it was a lifesaver, literally. But you don't know what it was. Don't know what it was. It was vegetarian though. There was no chicken. A lot of mushroom, I think. Oh, mushrooms. Um, but anyway, so that's our soup chat. Um, but let's <laughs> do you want to have a? Do you want to have a? How hungover have you been at uh, a work meeting chat? <laughs> do you have a lot of those? So I went to Tales of the Cocktail once. Um, I was going to say for those of you listening. Is anyone going to listen to this? No. Nah. So you know what Tales is. That's the that's the booze conference I have every year in New Orleans, but I haven't had it. I'm not having it uh, this year. I didn't have it last year, obviously. Anyway, um, I had a meeting with a guy who ran a sort of uh, small distributor out of the UK. Was up way too late the night before. As tales goes, you go to a handful of parties and then you should go home. But because the bars are open until 7 in the morning, you go to a couple of bars on the way back to the hotel and play up a bit. But I managed to drag myself out of bed into the shower to this meeting. I got to the meeting. It was in the hotel lobby of the guy who was staying there. And I'm there trying to pitch the idea that he should take Trump to the UK and put it in his portfolio. I threw up before the meeting. I was, I was in the Dunnies in the hotel lobby just just yelling at Ralph, right? I'm like, I can't, I fucking can't do this. Like, this is not happening. Were you throwing up soup? <laughs> no. I was throwing, okay. I was throwing up uh, probably like hurricanes or something, the bad shit you get in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... Massive. Um, I'm like, I can't do this. 
I'm not going to make it out of this bathroom, let alone through the meeting. Anyway, managed to bring everything up, got myself out, got myself to the meeting. You'll be not shocked to hear that um, we didn't end up launching the brand with this guy in the UK. But, <laughs> uh, but I got through it okay and then I immediately, as soon as we shook hands and finished, I immediately went back to the bathroom and threw up again. Book ended. Classy. Yeah. Professional. Very professional. I, you know, Tales of the Cocktail is the – for industry um, conference is the least professional like work thing I think on the planet. <laughs> Full of liquor industry professionals acting totally unprofessionally. Well – Let's take it back a bit. Yeah. Um, so you're the co-founder of Tequila Tromba. I am. One of five founders, myself, Nick Reed, who uh, we grew up with, um, another guy from Melbourne, um, his college roommate, Eric Brass, guy from Toronto, and Marco and Rodrigo Sedano, who are our production family, father and son distilling team. Five of us started it. But how did – I mean – how did with help from others? With help from others, <laughs> yourself included. But how? I mean, growing up, I mean, you did you ever expect that you would end up co-founding a tequila brand and that would turn into your professional career? No, um, I think that I always sort of had an entrepreneurial brain or spirit or whatever. Like Trump is not even the first business I started with, Nick. We had a car washing business for a day when we were growing up, like when we were 12 or something. Team Cleanliness was our, the name of our business. You and Reedy. Me and Reedy. We're like, we knew these guys who um, were making a decent amount of money just going door to door, selling their services, washing cars. I'm like, we could do that. So one Saturday we, we fired up and started our business and I think we closed it um, when the footy started later that day because we're like, no, I'm over this. don't want to do it anymore. How many cars did you clean? None. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the idea of uh, kicking off a business like always appealed to me. Um, you know, we had our... Me and you had our like little production company for a little while. We were trying to get some gigs. Um, my mate Tom McInerney, we started a little um, sort of um, digital real estate advertising. Oh, yeah, but blue boards, blue boards. Um. So yeah, um, I was definitely going to start something. Um, I never really liked working for anyone else. But in the tequila space, to like answer your actual question, I had no idea. It's like some of the best things that ever happen, I reckon, in your life is, you know, um, when opportunity knocks. Mm-hmm. And this particular opportunity just came up. It even came up in a strange way for Reedy because the same way Reedy sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I've got this idea. Do you want to get involved? I'm like, yeah. For sure, let's give it a try. That's what happened to him. He was working with some guys in Guadalajara 
And they tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, we're going to start this tequila brand. You should be our guy in Australia. So when you go back to Australia, you should take the brand with you and you should, you know, um, launch it over there. And those guys never followed through. But the idea sort of got into Reedy's head. So he said, well, fuck it. Let's, I could do this. I'll call up my gym. Maybe he's interested. I'll call up Eric. Maybe he's interested. And that's how I got started. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty... Um just the, I guess, you know, this, I mean, not luck, but one thing kind of led to the other because Nick Reed found himself in Guadalajara purely. Well, he went there on exchange, right? Right. With university. Yep. Meets, meets a girl, gets married, stays in Mexico, comes back to Australia for a bit. Was it, and then he, re, was it on the return leg where he approached you and said, let's do the tequila business, or was it already. It was midway through 2008. So we can, you know, you can draw back as far as you want. If um, if we hadn't gone to school together, you know. Exactly. If, if, I'd been, if I'd been put in school a year before, you know, we might not have been as good of friends. But, um, yeah, if you want to go back to what Nick's experience was, he was – he was definitely weighing up whether to go on exchange to Guadalajara or Sweden. Sweden? Yeah. So if he'd gone to Sweden instead, I think like Mike Scanlon and Andy Barrett went on that exchange. Mm-hmm. I think they were all talking about it. And Reedy's like, nah, fuck it. I'll, I'll check out Mexico instead. So if he'd gone to Sweden, then you you know would have started your own, what, Fernet Branca equivalent? Uh Canned fish. Can, canned fish. <laughs> what else do they make in Sweden? Um, furniture. Oh, yeah. Shitty furniture. Ikea. Meatballs. Meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, then, yeah, so he, he comes to you. He has this idea. Yeah, it was mid-2008. He'd spoken to those guys he was working with and he came to me with the idea we like drinking tequila um he sort of got me onto drinking tequila in the first place when he used to come back from mexico um from visits to mexico with sort of weird and wonderful different kinds of tequila in his in his luggage and we'd sit around his house in uh, richmond and drink a bunch and this sort of that got me into it and um when um yeah when he came to me sort of mid 2008 I just got home from a year overseas myself that was like um, about nine months after my first trip to Mexico and um, we sort of yeah kicked it off kicked it off then it was an idea we just continually batted around and it never went away and this would have been I mean it's no it's no secret that craft spirits has genuinely exploded probably all around the world in terms of i mean i know here in here in here in australia or here in melbourne um, the amount of you know local gin brands now and vodkas and even you know rums that's like it seems to have really really taken off but back so this is 2000 and leading into 2009 had that really it hadn't really kicked off yet right i mean there was there was still a lot of us i mean clearly a lot of established um very well-known labels that were around, 
and still are around, of course. But, I mean, were craft spirits even a thing back then? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Like the Melbourne Gin Company had been doing it for a while and, um, you know, like the whiskies out of Tasmania were starting to get a little bit of recognition. Yeah. Um, but by sheer availability, I suppose, um, not not heaps. But, you know, it was definitely like emerging and it all it all emerged on the back of the craft beer movement. Right. So, you know, all you have to do is look at the US for a bunch of different trends and eventually that sort of stuff makes it here to Australia. Um, so, you know, when craft beer started booming in the US, all those initial movers in the craft beer space eventually bought a still and started distilling something. It was usually gin, um, some whiskies, because like they wanted to sort of capitalize on um, their own place in the market where, well, if we can make beer, if we can make these ridiculous, you know, um, IPAs, overhopped IPAs, maybe we can make a whiskey to go with it sort of. That was the argument. And it was the same here when craft beer sort of really started to rise up with sort of Mountain Goat and and brands like that to challenge CUB. Um, it was only a matter of time before the spirits came came through, yeah, uh, as well. So, but I guess I mean tequila specifically. I mean that's because you know anyone that could anyone could just pick up you know buy a still, build a still, put it somewhere get some ingredients, start making alcohol. Yeah. But te- tequila specifically because there are, and we'll get to that in a bit, but there's a lot of regulations around, I mean, tequila has to come from Jalisco and Mexico. Like, you know, yeah. you can't just start making tequila in, you know, someone's backyard in Australia. Well, you could back then. Right. There's, there was no law against it. In uh, 2009? Well, there was no law against it that was recognised in, in Australia. Yeah, I think the the law where you couldn't interesting, okay, you couldn't label something tequila uh, only came into effect. I think in twenty thirteen, maybe. Oh wow! Yep, but you know it's always been a law in Mexico, but it it's up to the rest of the world to recognize those laws. Right. Have we got off the subject? What, what were you asking me? No, no, we were just we were just kind of you know starting um so starting from the beginning and like how the so basically, how the brand got off the off the ground? Yeah, well, I, I touched on the the trends from the US very briefly, which was, you know, craft beer into craft spirits, and there was a few around back in sort of two thousand nine, but not many. Um, I think Triple Six Vodka really just got started in two thousand nine, maybe started two thousand ten, but not not just that trend of the um, craft beer into craft spirits. Um, which had, which we'd see in the US, which we knew was going to become a thing in Australia. Um, the Mexican food and drink culture and the sort of premiumization of that in America was also pretty evident to us that that would be sort of the next um, the next hot food and drink trend uh, in Australia. And we were proven right. We started our tequila brand um, 
it really got started after we'd sort of me and Nick and Eric had sort of kicked around the idea for most of 2009. We really got started when we properly met up with Marco and Rodrigo in Guadalajara in January 2010. We started making tequila that April and we launched it that September. That same year in February, Mama Cedar opened in the Melbourne CBD and just exploded and just, you know, everyone wanted to go and eat tacos and drink, mm. drink margaritas. It was incredible. So it kind of put... Good, the, good timing on our part. It really kind of put, um, yeah, like the Mexican Mexican cuisine in Melbourne kind of on the map right when Mama Cedar opened and then everything that comes with that, especially tequila. Yeah. And so you launch, you said September 2010, that's at the Sydney Bar Show, right? Yeah, Sydney Bar Show, September 22nd, 2010. And it was a bit of a, I mean, I, I was I was there helping you guys out at the Sydney Bar Show, but um, the story of how the tequila actually got into the country and to the bar show, it was... Um, how would you describe it? It was rather, ra- rather turbulent? Yeah. Chaotic? I was, I was thinking you were going to ask me about this. Oh, I was thinking we'd sit down and you'd be like, I've, you know, tell us your best stories <laughs> from the from the tequila business or hospitality business adjacent stories. You know? And then I'd start talking and you'd just listen. But I figured you'd ask me about this because it's the first funny story to come out of our business probably mm-hmm. there's some stories from the Guadalajara trip as well that are pretty good like when we stayed up for 27 hours in a row um, that was pretty funny I was just thinking I actually don't even remember that <laughs> I'll get to that second <laughs> tell the first one first because it's it's the funny I think it's the funniest story and I think it's and it's the first story which is why it's it's funny so I already mentioned that we started making tequila in the April and we launched it in September. So, you know, April, May, June, July, five months. We were waiting. It only takes two weeks to make a batch of Blanco tequila. So we were waiting five months for something that should have taken, you know, even with um, shipping, maybe maybe three months. So... We're sitting here for two months holding our dicks waiting for fucking this tequila to show up. Meanwhile, we invested we'd invested pretty much everything um, to date. I don't think we had any money left um, from the startup funds. And we invested the last of it by buying a booth at the Sydney Bar Show, which we're, where we're going to introduce Tromba to... Melbourne's, um, Australia's bar and restaurant community. So we were invested. We were heavily invested. And we were sitting around and we were waiting and we were waiting. And it was getting closer and closer and closer to the date. And this fucking tequila still wasn't showing up. And I'm like, I don't know. But it hadn't, but had it actually been shipped yet or was it sitting on the ground in Guadalajara? No, it had been shipped. Okay, so it's left Mexico. Yep. And Rodrigo is on the phone all the time to the freight forwarding company who were supposed to be sending us this bloody tequila. 
um, after a long and thorough investigation, it turns out the freight forwarding company, our particular, um, I suppose you call him a um, you know, customer management, like he was our, our account manager, so we were his customer. Turns out that guy was running a, another business another freight forwarding business within the business that he worked for. I forgot about and that, And he was yeah. pocketing all the money. So he would... Cheeky, cheeky. So he would take clients, us being one of them, not put them on the books of his company that he worked for and he would just take our money and pocket it and all he did was just ship stuff out of the country and he didn't care if it got to the end destination. Turns out our tequila was sitting at the port of Los Angeles for like... Two months. And no one knew it was there. They couldn't find it. So through Rodrigo's persistence, this guy ended up getting found out. He actually went to jail. Oh. Over yeah. Uh, what did he, he get? You know? Mexican jail. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> um, and um, we eventually did get that shipment of tequila. It took, I think, another two months after we'd launched. So... We're sitting there in Sydney. Well, we're sitting here in Australia with no stock and Sydney, the bar show is coming up the following week and we're just like, oh, man, like we're going to have to pull out. There's nothing here. Like this is a bloody disaster. But we were so sort of set on launching. We were so eager to get started, to launch the brand. We were like, and we were so, I can't stress enough, we invested so much money. Like, we can't just let this, we can't let this die. So Reedy ends up uh, booking a flight to LA. Rodrigo ends up booking a flight from Guadalajara to LA. So Nick's gone from Melbourne to, to LA. Rodrigo's gone from Guadalajara to LA. They met up at the airport. Rodrigo bought with him, I think, three or four six-packs. I think he brought four six-packs of Tromba. From Mexico or did he actually get it from the port? No, nah, from Mexico. So he had some still. Um, remember, he was starting to sort of shop it around Guadalajara to sell it to so friends. He kind of had some in reserve there. And- yeah. So um, he had some in reserve. So he puts that in his bag. And that's another story. He might have to interview him. But Rodrigo tells a story about how he sh- shows up to the airport with four cases of tequila and they're like what are you doing you can't bring that you can't check that it's like of course i can check that you know there's nothing i'm gonna declare it when i when i get to the u.s there's there's no reason why i can't bring this and they're like no you can't do it he says well either you let me do it or i'm gonna go and ask every person in this line she said you can only bring two bottles and so i got four cases he's like you can let me bring it or i'm gonna go ask everyone in this line to carry two bottles for me and i'm gonna hold the whole thing up (laughs) What are you going to do? So she let him take it. So he meets up with Reedy in the US. They see each other for a couple of hours. I think they hung out in Santa Monica. And so Reedy was there for a day. He got in. He flew in in the morning, picked up the tequila, flew out that night. And meanwhile, I think – did you drive up with me? I don't think so. I think no, I drove I think, up by myself. Yeah, no, I think you drove up by yourself. So I had all the gear um, in Melbourne and we – we packed up Dad's old Land Cruiser, and we drove, and I drove up by myself. Because there's a lot of stuff. Because the the booth entails. There's kind of like a 
just like a regular convention, right? Like you set up a stand, you have yeah. the printouts of the, oh, we just had a, the logos and no, all we, that. No, we just had like some floor space. We, we had to construct a, a proper um, booth. So we were doing that while Nick and Rodrigo were meeting up. Me, you, and Lupita were doing that. Yep. Um, so... <laughs> But there was still no tequila, of course. No, so we're zero tequila. But setting we're, up a booth that could potentially for tequila tromba. The one thing that we didn't have was the bottles of tequila, <laughs> which you kind of need, I suppose, if you're launching a tequila brand. Pretty, pretty important, I guess. Yeah. So Reedy's back on the plane. Reedy tells a funny story that he he took a sleeping tablet because he's like, I'm, I've got to wake up, hit the ground running, because he was going to get back just in time. Um, he was going to get back the morning that the bar show was opening. We'd, we'd sort of bumped in the day before and Reedy was coming in hot with the tequila that morning. We are going to go. He was going to get in at 7. I think the, the whole thing started at maybe 11, 10 in the morning. And I guess it's important to, to note is that at this stage, no one, I mean, Rodrigo must have, but you and... Nick had not even tasted the tequila we yet. We hadn't held it in our hands. We hadn't tried the we hadn't tried the tequila at all. No. So there was a lot on the line. It was. We weren't we weren't sure if it was going to be any good. Rodrigo and Marco were assuring us it was very good, but we didn't know. So yeah, we we're all set to launch our tequila brand, having never tried it, and yeah, setting up a stand that didn't have any tequila. So Reedy's back on the plane. He pops a sleeping tablet and he and he um and he goes to sleep. He's like, yeah, I'll be I'll be ready as soon as we as soon as I hit the ground running. I'll be I'll be rested and I can do the full day's work. And he uh he touches back down. <laughs> so he reckons he wakes up as soon as the wheels hit the ground, and the pack, the captain gets on. And is like, you know, welcome to. Uh, welcome to home if you're uh, Australian and to those visiting. Welcome to sunny Brisbane. And like, Brisbane? <laughs> We're in fucking Brisbane? So it turns out that the Sydney airport was fogged in and they had to land in Brisbane instead. So he's like, he, cause, and he's like, oh, if I fuck this up, like, do I accidentally get on the, the, the Brisbane flight the instead wrong, of wrong the Sydney plane. flight? So he sits, has to sit on the tarmac in Brisbane for like two hours. Uh, eventually getting himself back to, to Sydney. I reckon he got back to Sydney, I reckon they landed at about 10, 10.30. Meanwhile, the show is starting at 11. So I go to pick him up. Mate, how's it going? Bloody disaster. He's like, whatever. Throws the tequila into the into the, um, the back of the car. Uh, you and Lupita have opened the stand... Yep. At the Sydney Bar Show. Doors have opened. People have started to arrive. What were you telling people? Um, oh, I think we were just kind of, yeah, I think we were just saying, oh, yeah, our, our stock is on the way. Like, it's, you know, it's been, it's been delayed. Come back on your next lap and we'll have some yeah. samples ready. Significantly delayed. Go get a coffee. It's 11. Mm. I can't remember why. I mean, we must have been going to the hotel. I think we must have had to pick up something from the hotel. But we're driving through. King's Cross, you know, the I think mm-hmm. it's Williams Williams Road that comes up to the old Coke sign or whatever. And we're driving through that way and 
Reedy turns to me and goes, we should probably try this fucking tequila. <laughs> I'm like, all right. He pulls a bottle out of his bag, opens it up in the car, and we he's got two like plastic cups. <laughs> pours each a pours us each a shot. We cheers and we go have a sip and we go. And I remember thinking, like, is this is this pretty good? And Reedy looks at me and goes, This is pretty good, right? He's like, Yeah, it's good. I don't remember us going, Oh wow, this is amazing. Oh, They've done like they've outdone themselves. This is just the best tequila I've ever tried in my entire life. I remember being so relieved that it wasn't shit. Yeah, that was the overriding experience. And then, you know, you know that should have been one of like the like the original kind of you know marketing kind of taglines. Like here, drink our tequila. It's it's you know, at least it's not shit or something. It's not shit. It's not shit. But we it was such a relief having gone through all the pains of like starting the business for starters, but then all the pains of getting those initial box, uh, bottles and boxes to Australia, we were just, it was just a very much a few kind of moment. So, yeah, first ever trom- trombo I drank, I was actually driving a car at, while, I was, while I was doing it, driving through King's Cross in Sydney. Again, professional. Pro- very professional. professional. So that was, so that was, I mean, that, that was the beginning. Like that was the first yeah. time you tasted the juice. Yep. So then we get to the Sydney Bar Show. We meet up with you guys and we pour you guys on. And you, I think you have similar reactions. Like this is pretty good, right? Yeah. This is pretty good. And the, the, Smooth. the, day, the day we spent there and I met some people that day that I know to this day, guys like Seb Costello and um, Clinton Hoare and Brian Townsend and Merlin, we talk about um, – we talk about that first day a lot because we sort of got to know our own tequila and brand in real time with people that we now uh, and still have today as as friends. We were sort of drinking it throughout the course of the day, getting to sort of know it. And people were talking to us about it, and you know, we were comparing um, just drinking experiences of that of that initial batch of Tromba and. It was a bit of a baptism by fire because we had to like talk to all these people about something that we were learning about that day, all on the spot, basically. Very much, um, and trying to trying to fool them into believing that we knew what we were talking about. So you're underway. I mean, the juice is in the country. Now you have to. I mean, now you have to sell the stuff. Yep. Now. How the fuck do you do that? I don't fucking know. I still don't know. Ten years later, here we are. No, it's pretty basic. It's just every, like everything. It's relationships, you know. Who'd we go and sell it to first? Well, we met a few guys, right, at the Sydney Bar Show. The overall experience was, was a good one. Um, but we've often thought, you know, like what, like what were we worried about? Whether we started at the Sydney Bar Show or we started just by walking into a bar in Sydney. It's the same thing. But um, we sold a few cases. Uh, off the back of that, we met Clinton Bryan, who are running uh, Mayor Tequila Bar in South Yarra. We met Seb, who was running Knightsbridge Penthouse in Canberra. So we actually sold Seb a, a case of tequila on the drive back from Sydney. Oh, so you called in? We called in to, to Canberra on the way to back Canberra from Sydney. on the way back and sold him a box. 
which is pretty cool. But uh, how we got started, well, we went and had a chat to Andy at Movita and Lingy, who was running Movita next door at the time. Um, start with your mates. And then I, I was working on Iron Chef um, at the time as just a production assistant. And um, one of the contestants, um, he was running some restaurant in Lawn, but he put me on to this guy, Dylan Hickey was his name. He was running the Toff in town mm-hmm. um, at the time. And not only did he decide to pick it up, he decided to put it in the rail. Uh, and they were, they were going through a case a week and I thought it was the best thing ever. I do remember actually when they had when they were pouring that there because that was probably, yeah, one of the first places you could take friends and yep. and kind of, you know, people were slinging the tequila. And yep. I guess probably the first time when you're seeing other people that you don't know drinking the tequila. Right. And, you, and you're kind of like, oh, shit, like this is starting to kind of get out there. Like this is, yeah. this is pretty cool. Because we got it under a few back bars, but people had to go in and request it. But if you went into the top and you just ordered a tequila, Trombo was what you got. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think they did two cases a week. I think that was what their thing was. And I thought, oh man, this, if we can keep this up, we're going to be millionaires. <laughs> but um, you asked me like how you sell the stuff and it's like like anything, it's selling yourself. You just got to, you know, we just put a couple of bottles in our backpacks and started, Eric did the same thing in Toronto and we just walked around telling our story, telling Marco's story. And getting people to try it. Once we got, you know, once we got people to actually try it, I've only had a couple of experiences where people just put the glass down and said, "No, that's not for me." Just based, but that's that's purely based on their personal taste for tequila, right? Because, right. I mean, you've obviously got the, like you said, like telling your story and selling the story is a big part of the brand, and it obviously helps to have very nice tasting tequila. Yeah. But it's where you can kind of stand out from from the restaurant. I mean, you see a lot of you see a lot of celebrity tequilas these days and a lot of their stories is just like, well, it's just someone famous. It's their brand, that's it. But I loved I love tequila. It was always my dream. Yeah. Making tequila wasn't my dream. My dream was to play cricket for Australia. <laughs> and then I turned twelve. You know? But it's sort of, you know, passions develop over time. It's it's introduced me to so many people. The real the real thing I like I've like I've been trying to say like how you sell it is about selling yourself and it's about building the relationships. And I think what I've got most out of the whole experience is the relationships I've got mm-hmm. or had. You know, there were people I knew for a short amount of time in places like Chicago and Sydney and places I've lived on behalf of the brand who I don't see anymore or hear from anymore. But at the time, you know, I wouldn't trade those relationships at all. It's awesome. And I guess one of the strongest relationships um, would be with the Sedano family. So Marco Sedano, he is, he's the master distiller. He he brews the uh, the juice. I'm not sure if that's the technical uh, terms you use for making tequila, but it picks the fruit. It goes to Cotties. Because makes the cordial. Yep. Um, because I mean, his. I mean, 
his relationship very strong, very close to to him. But him and him, him in him set like his story alone is pretty extraordinary because you could you could almost say that he was the one or at least one of the people solely responsible for bringing premium tequila to the world. Yeah, he's one of the he's one of the OG tequila guys. Well, um premium tequila guys. Because premium tequila, right. When he sort of started in the industry, he started working for the Gonzalez family um, who had a tequila brand called Tres Magues. They were effectively the Cuervo of the Highlands. Mm-hmm. So, and they made Montezuma, if you remember that one. It used to come in plastic bottles. Mm-hmm. Horrible shit. Like, anyway, but that's what it was back in those days. It was, you know, tequila was the working man's drink. Um, it was predominantly, it was actually entirely mixed though. Everything was mixed dough in the industry at the time. And mixed dough is when it's 50, what is it, 51? 51% blue Weber agave and the rest is just like sugarcane, whatever, right? Just all kinds of crap. Yeah, so there's two main categories for tequila. There's mixed dough, um, 51% sugars of the agave had to be uh, present to call it, to be able to call it tequila. And the forty nine percent can be anything else. Usually, it's yeah, sugarcane distillate or corn um, distillate, some caramel colorings, sugars, and that sort of thing. And there's a and then there's a hundred percent agave, which, as it sounds, is a hundred percent sugars of the blue agave to make tequila. And then there's sort of subcategories of that based on age. Um, so back in the seventies, when Marco got started, it was all about um, mixed oat tequila commodity-based um, industry. There was nothing really craft, crafty about it. There was like private um, like family vintages and things like that, which, mm-hmm. which were of a more premium nature, but they were never rele- released commercially. Similar to when sort of agave spirits got started, they were all you know community-based. All the mezcals would like – there was a palenque in every village and they used to make their own stuff. It wasn't until Cuervo came out in the late 1700s that – they started to, you know, commercialize it. So very like kind of just region to region, like, yeah. you know, like single vineyard in a way, you know, like everyone just had their... Well, they use the term single village. Single village. Uh, okay. About mezcal. Anyway, we're getting off the point. Um, uh, Marco entered a, you know, burgeoning business. Tequila had been a huge deal for 200 years uh, by the time he came along, but... Uh, they hadn't really, um, you know, made any significant updates to the offering. Uh, it was just different kinds of, you know, mixed oat tequila from different parts of Jalisco mainly. And then um, in – so he worked for, um, like I said, the Gonzalez family, um, specifically Don Julio Gonzalez, the legend. Um, but Marco reckons that they didn't pay very well, so he quit and he went and and he went and did something else. I think he worked at a leather factory or something like that, using his skills as um as an engineer. Uh, but when Don Julio, the man, when he retired, his son took over, and his son convinced Marco to come back and work for him. He said he'd pay him a bit more, so he headed up the factory at, at Tres Magues, and they were still making you know what they were making the way they'd always done it. 
and Marco was just unsatisfied with like I mean you've met him he's a very exact person he's like stubborn for sure but he's very precise in, in what he wants to do and I, and I think he's just not satisfied you know pumping out pumping out the same old shit right mm. so he reckons that in 1985 he decided uh we have this amazing raw ingredient. Why Why is it going underutilized in the final product? Simpler answer to why was economics, but... You just make more. Oh, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Agave is expensive. Sugar is cheap. So why don't we just, you know... Mixed dough makes more sense. Yeah. But, you know, there's premium whiskey on the market. There's premium cognac, like... Um, there's some incredible like spirits out there that um you know aren't cheap. What if there was a tequila and yeah it'll cost more to make, but then we can charge more and it's you know more of a premium product. This sort of idea started eating away at him. And he, you know, took a while trying to convince well he unsuccessfully tried to convince um Francisco Gonzalez that it would be a good idea. So in the true sort of um, rogue distiller spirit as he is, um, better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. He said, fuck it, I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, So in 1985, they started a three-year process of experimenting with batches of 100% agave tequila. And what he would do is he would create a batch, taste it, um, age it, because he wanted to make a reposado initially. Um, so Reposado is one of those age categories. We can go through them uh, in a sec if you want. But um, his Reposado is going to be aged six months. So you'd age this tequila, you'd try it. Mm, don't know. Uh, trying to get his process down to make it cost effective. Three years he did this. And um, what he used to do is just uh, blend those batches of 100% agave tequila back into the batches of... Um, either Tresmegues or oh, right. Montezuma or whatever he was making. So no one knows no one knows the difference. Yeah. And then he got it to a point um, where it came off the still and he was really happy with it. Uh, and this time he was going to you know, properly age um, a batch of Reposado and hopefully bottle it. So initially he was, he was just trying to master that because it all starts as a Blanco. So Blanco is just straight off the still. Yeah. And then Reposado is minimum six to 12 months nice. resting. So a Blanco, you can age up to two months. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, at zero to, to two months, uh, Blanco, you can age from two to 12 months. And Yeho, uh, so Reposado means rested. Mm-hmm. So it's just a brief aging period. Um, and Yeho means aged. So, that's um, one to three years, and then everything beyond three years is extra in your Right. So, so he was trying to perfect that Blanco, and then once he did that, it's like, hey, this is it. Now I'm going to put some put some in barrels. Put it in barrel, and if I've got this great Blanco tequila, we'll make a really good Reposado tequila. So mm. three years, uh, yeah, nearly three years this took him. So in 80, 1988, um, he had this first batch that he was ready to to age and then bottle. The only problem was he, he couldn't find any barrels. So they were at, you know, at capacity at the factory. Like every every drop would go into barrels. 
Um, but he, he did find some and it was at the Gonzalez family house, which was across the street from the distillery, which is where Francisco Gonzalez lived when he was in Los Altos. He had a house in Guadalajara and he had a house in, um, in Los Altos, in Totonilco, across the street from the distillery. And there were these 12 barrels just sitting empty uh, in the basement of that house. So what he does is one, one night in the middle of the night... Because he was doing this, like, he was doing this solo. He had his crew of guys, but they were all sworn to secrecy. Wasn't telling the bosses, that's for sure. Um, Sorry about that. So he goes um, in the middle of the night, connects a hose to the the storage tank um, in the distillery, runs it across the street into the basement of the house, fills up those 12 barrels and, and lets them sit there for six months. In six wow. months, in six months, he pulls a. Um, uh, he taps one of the barrels, tastes it. This is it. Yeah, I've done it. Um, fills up a glass, goes upstairs, knocks on the, <laughs> knocks on um, Francisco's door. He goes, "Oh, you got to try this. This is awesome." So he gives the glass to, to um, Francisco to the big boss. This is Don Julio's son who had mm-hmm. taken over for her after Don Julio retired. So Fran- Francisco tries the tequila and he freaks out. He's like, this is amazing. He's like, yeah, 100% agave tequila. I told you. Like, this is unbelievable. Who's it, who makes this tequila? Like, whose is it? Yeah, whose is it? He's like, well, it's yours. He's <laughs> like, what do you mean? Well, we make it. Oh, this is unbelievable. Um, where can I get some? You know, where can I get a bottle or where can I... Where can I get some more of this? This is delicious. Said, there's 12 barrels of it downstairs. (laughs) Anyway, those initial batches became the first batches of the tequila that's now called Don Julio because um, Marco designed that tequila, that premium 100% agave tequila that ended up being a reposado, that ended up starting the movement towards 100% agave tequila. And Francisco Gonzalez invented the Don Julio brand in honour of his dad who um, who had just retired. So those first initial batches came out in the late 80s. Um, Patron comes along in um, uh, in the early 90s and really they, they changed the game in terms of marketing. Um, premium tequila, unbelievable. And um, yeah, the rest is sort of history. Because tequila now is, I mean, whiskey's always been the um, fastest growing spirit Pretty much anywhere, right? Or is it kind of is it shifted a bit? Because tequila's almost taken over, hasn't it? Fastest growing, um, I think vodka still outpaces most most categories. Really? Yeah. Or maybe that's just highest selling. Um, but yeah, for a while, Irish whiskey was really mm-hmm. the fastest growing in the, in the in the global spirits market, and tequila um, is. If it's not the fastest growing, it's it's up there. It's it's grown exponentially since since the late eighties, even since we started in two thousand and ten. It's just out of control. Which is a good thing and a bad thing, you know? It's a bad thing because it's hard to keep up. Agave takes you know, blue agave that you make tequila from 
there's only one specific agave plant you can make tequila from, and it's that one. And it takes, you know, minimum seven years to fully mature. Yeah. So it's, it's still it, it's still mind-boggling the, the the time it takes, like you said, for it to mature. But I mean, Jalisco is not a big like a big place. I mean, like, um, compared to what? Well, compared to Queensland, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's not for the amount of tequila that's being produced. Like you just you have to you just have to think like where the where that's the fuck of, where the fuck is all this agave? It's a lot from? of agave, yeah. Well, you got to consider like um, the other municipalities as well. Like there's a lot of agave grown in Tamaulipas and Michoacan. Mm. Yeah, all the distillery, most of the distilleries, majority of the distilleries is still in Jalisco. Right. Um, but yeah, it is you know a rel- still a relatively you're right it's still a relatively small industry to pump out as much tequila as, as they do and when you think about all the big multinational companies that have that own tequila companies or tequila brands rather it is a staple yeah so it's been so what is what year is it 2021 so it's 11 years that the brand's been around it'll be 11 years in September in September You'll have to do a little reunion on the road with with Reedy, sipping some tequila behind the wheel. It's hard. It's hard to get those guys to agree on what the birthday is, though. Really? Well, what's what's the argument? Well, according is to, it is it the day of the Sydney Bar Show, or is it? Well, according to me, it is. Yeah, that's the day I first tried it. That's the day I we first we sold our first bottles of it. But then you talk to Marco and Rodrigo, and it's it's April of that year because that's when they first started. Making it, yeah. And you talk to Brass, and it's like, no, our first, our first full year of operation was twenty twelve, and he counts twenty twelve. <laughs> so, I'll just go with the first date, the earliest one. But where's, I mean, how has the the brand grown over the last eleven years? You know, like, is it, is it where? you thought it would be? Has it grown more? Is it Well, it's sort of grown the only way we know how to do it. Like it the same the similar um kind of approach than it was, you know, eleven years ago. Bottles in the backpack, go around to as many places as you can, talk to people about it, get people to try it, maybe they'll buy a few bottles. The difference is we've got a lot more people working for us to do that. Now and we do it in a lot more places. So, you know, we started out here, or we started out in Mexico, really, um, selling it to to friends and family in Mexico, and then we started out here, and then we launched it in Toronto, and we went Australia wide, and then we went nationwide in Canada, and then we launched it in the US in 2014. That's when I moved there. Um, we just started out in the Chicago and Washington DC markets, and then we built it up to 15 states in the US. So in that, um, so if you if you look at 2010, how many cases would you have sold that year of Tromba? You think? Well, I think the initial, I think the initial uh, run was ten thousand liters. Ten thousand liters, okay. And I think we put down about fifteen hundred uh, in barrels. So we would have we would have bottled six thousand 
liters. Um, yeah, bottled six thousand liters. Oh wait a minute. No, I think we put down twenty five hundred in barrels. Yeah, we would have we would have bottled um, uh, seven and a half thousand liters, which would have made ten thousand bottles. And I think it took us close to a year to try and sell that to get rid of all of those. Yeah, and both in. Australia, Mexico, and Canada. And Canada. Combined. I think it took us a year to, to sell the first batch, yeah. So one year, 10,000 bottles. Two th- I mean, we all want to kind of pretend that 2020 didn't happen, but let's just look at 2019. Well, you know, I mean, you can look at last year, but flash forward to um, the last couple of years, what's that number now standing at? So we probably did 30,000, like... End of twenty, so January, so end of twenty nineteen, we probably did thirty thousand nine liter cases. Thirty thousand nine liter cases. Yeah. So that's three hundred sixty thousand bottles. Well, there you go. There you go. Not bad. It's a lot of tequila. Good size. Not Good. bad. <laughs> um. <laughs> what's your go to cocktail with uh with tequila? Uh, I love a paloma. What's in a paloma? Tequila, lime, grapefruit soda, salt. Mm, delicious. Yeah, it's an old cantina drink from the town of tequila. Um, and um, it's just easy. It's just simple. The best cocktails are the simple ones. Like I like a tricked out tiki drink as much as the next person, but I've had Palomas in some of the fanciest cocktail bars on the planet and I've made them for friends in the car park of a Seven Eleven, Like, it's pretty awesome. And it's really refreshing. And you can drink a few of them. Mm. I love a margarita. I really do. But I I can have maybe one a week or maybe two a month. Just the, the acid just starts to attack. I just get heartburn looking at them. Oof. But oh. Paloma's, um, I'm happy to sip on all day. It's a really good drink. Actually, speaking, we do have some... Some tromba here that we're going to just sip on while we while we chat away and maybe close out things. Okay, close um, out with a drink. What do we got here? Um, this is the only bottle that I managed to um, find uh, in the house earlier. It's a bottle of the Reposado. It's probably a batch we made last year. Delicious. Uh, yeah, I like the Repsite. I think it makes our best margarita too. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. This will make me feel better. Just oh, warm, yeah. Just warms the soul. It's very good. Uh, and yeah, I think it makes our best marg for sure. Um, there's something about the uh, oak flavouring on the Reposado that just plays really nicely with the sort of acid of the, of the lime. Um, so that Repsado is aged... For um, it's like six to eight months, they usually age the um, batches of Reposado, and they're all aged in, in old old whiskey barrels, right? Ex Jack Daniels barrels. Ex yeah. Jack Daniels barrels. Yep. And then, what does um, what does the future look like for Tromba? I mean, I know earlier we were talking about um, trends from the US that are that kind of make their you know make their way to Australia and. 
I mean, a, a huge trend that we've been noticing is um, hard seltz- seltzers, right? That all, all the all the big beer labels are doing them in the US. Yep. They're starting to creep in here. Canned cocktails have become a huge thing. Is that something that's the kind of future of the brand? Um, yeah, I think that the future of the brand, um, I mean, we've done a lot in bars and restaurants. I'm really lucky to have drunk Trombo in some of the best bars and restaurants in the world, right? I think I told you the story. Like, I've been to 11 Madison. Hey, you've been to 11 Madison Park, right? I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Widely regarded as the best restaurant. Well, one one of those best restaurants in the world was a few years back. I believe it's... um. It could. St- it, it it was number one. Um, was it two years back? Three years back? And then it dropped to number two. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's incredible joint. It's up there. Yeah. So I like telling people I've been there for a drink because <laughs> Heather Ash, who um, was our first brand ambassador in New York, she was awesome. She really got us, you know, got us motoring um, in New York. Uh, she got it into there, and uh, it was one of the more satisfying. Glasses of Trombo ever had was sitting up at the bar at Eleven Madison Park and having a Trombo near her. That was really cool. So there's, but you know, Eleven Madison Park is it's not many like it's not much further to go when it comes to bars and restaurants when you be able to do that. Like the verdict is in by the global bar community. They really do like our tequila, and mm. that's awesome because we've spent you know ten years getting to that point where we're accepted. Well, that was the whole strategy, right? Rather than just spending a whole bunch of money on marketing and going straight to like a, a consumer at home, it was speaking to the bars, you know, yep. speaking to the bartenders, speaking to restaurateurs and getting the industry on side, yeah, building yeah. it from the inside and then they would then pass that on to the to the average punter, right? Yeah, I mean, the hospitality industry is good that way. I think you can you can do something on a shoestring budget like we've done as long as the product's good. Like people have a general consensus about a product. And then there's other products that come in to the market, not just tequila, and they do really well because they spend a lot of money, but that's fleeting. It's not, it, not, it doesn't last. As soon as the checks stop coming, people stop caring about certain brands. Yeah, we never ran in money to spend anyway, but our entire marketing budget was my bar tab basically, and even sometimes I didn't pay those. <laughs> um, like I said, bars and restaurants – We'll do that forever. Um, that's a cornerstone of our business. And it's something like we really know how to do it too, which is good. Um, we know how to present our brand to the opinion leaders in the liquor industry. And for the most part, um, we've got a good level of acceptance from that. So I think what's next is the things that we don't know how to do. We are Australia's most popular tequila, premium tequila in um, bars and restaurants. It's a fact. No one barely comes close to what we're doing. But we can't get um, vintage sellers and Dan Murphy's to care. Like We can't get them on site to, to, to help us push our tequila into um, home bars, into people's hands to make margaritas at home and things like that. So I think that's the next big challenge is to market the brand um, a bit more effectively to um, just general punters. And that and that's purely based on on volume, right? Like it's not it's not generating enough like there's not enough volume being sold 
to someone that's going to take it home rather than someone that's sitting in a bar or sitting in a restaurant that's that's ordering it off the list. Right. Yeah, well, it's not a volume problem per se. Like we sell a good amount of, of um, tequila through Dan Murphy's, for example. I think they're probably our biggest customer. Like I think they do, you know, 30 cases a month or something like that, which is good which is good stuff. Right. What we want to do though is go do like 300 a month to really get the home bartenders um, really loving our brand and, and loving tequila as much as, as much as we do. That's why we started the brand in the first place was to get as many people as we could to drink better tequila. Mm. We've done that in bars and restaurants. Let's try and do that at barbecues. Because that was one of the even, I mean, even going back to the, Sydney bar show and like, you know, pouring a sample to someone. I mean, there were a lot of, you know, bar enthusiasts and drinkers there. Um, but if you're speaking to like, you know, like some of your mates or, or family and friends and like, here, try this tequila. Like, oh, I don't know. I had an awful experience on tequila when I was in uni or college or, you know, it's because they were drinking shit. Right. That right. was almost like the first, one of the first hurdles to get, to get over with people. Massively. Massively. And people still feel that way sometimes. Um, more and more people have gotten over it. Uh, I was talking to Matt, our cousin Matt, yesterday. Um, he's like one of my first victims. We we're talking about we went in a good way. In a good way. We, uh, I just, it wasn't even, it wasn't even Trombo. We hadn't even launched. I think I had a bottle of Don Julio or something. And he was over for dinner at Mum's. I'm like, oh, you got to try this. And we just had a long chat. And the the glass kept getting refilled and refilled, and because he's like, I can't do this. Like this is not me. Um, you know, like I had that bad experience. I was like, No, no, you got to try something different. You got to try something of a higher quality. It's all about drinking better and drinking less rather than you know mm. the cheap and nasty tequila shots we used to do. And he he reminded me of it yesterday. He's like, Yeah, I I I love tequila. He loves it now, absolutely spoons it up. And I didn't know it at the time, but him being my yeah, I, one of the first people I convinced to try and you know drink better, to try and drink good tequila. I didn't realize I'd be doing that for the next you know twelve years, but that's basically what I've been doing. And coming back to what's next. That's what I want to do on sort of a larger scale. I just got to figure out how to do that. Uh, whether it's through, you know, things like this online, you know, doing creating some content based around tequila or, you know, doing some, you know, digital advertising campaigns. We're going to launch our own direct-to-consumer website where it's going to be part tequila store, part, um, you know, merch uh, or some sort of limited edition um uh, merch for the brand maybe we'll get people excited because we bring out a fucking awesome t-shirt and maybe they'll buy tequila apparel <laughs> maybe and maybe they'll buy a bottle of tequila when they get it like oh I love that I want to buy one of those oh I, I guess there's a tequila company too All right, I'll try and I'll try one of their um, margarita kits or something like that so yeah that's that's the big challenge I mean that's the, that's the thing like you remember that, um, Simon Sinek um I can't remember. Law of diffusion of innovation. I think it's what it is. And it's like the society goes on a curve and you sort of, if you can picture a curve, the first sort of 
people just understand what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like those are the people who line up to get iPhones. Like I'm just having that. Yeah. Like that's me. I get it. I want it. And I don't care how expensive it is, what hurdles I have to get. I'm just having that. So same as with tequila. You'll get the first 15% just by showing up because people understand the value of premium tequila. They understand the value of craft spirits. They want to try something different because they like what it says about themselves as much as it says about you who's offering me the tequila. And then it's the next sort of 15 to 20% of, of people that you've got to really put the work into to try and convince. And then the, and then if you convince them, then the, the next 20% of people will take notice of them, right? Yeah. And sooner or later you've got, say, 75% of the, of the market. The bottom 25% are the people who will never, ever drink tequila, so you don't have to worry about them. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard to get those people. It's hard to reach the tipping point but we're gonna what we've been good at over the years is working hard and trying different things and that's what we're gonna do and i mean like because a big that, part that in rtds <laughs> i forgot to mention so you asked me about the hard seltzer and things like that and it's undeniable things like white claw and, and shit like that um that again we've got to at least try to see if we can capture some sort of interest in our brand through those mediums. So we released a tequila and soda in Canada last year and it went really well. We've collaborated with um, a local company here in um, in Melbourne to create uh, margaritas in a can. Um, by collaborate, I mean we just sold them some tequila. They, they made the whole thing and they've done a really good job. It's blowing up. So, you know, this year we'll, we'll, we'll bring out a few more canned products We'll try a few different things to get, you know, eyes on the brand and follow through on retail. We'll do some direct-to-consumer stuff all the while maintaining what we do best, which is work it in bars and restaurants. Awesome. Well. How was that? Before you go. Yeah. Um, favorite bar in the whole wide world? El Gallo Altanero. Calle Marcella. Colonia Americana, Guadalajara. That is a good bar. Upstairs from the Fitzroy Espresso Bar. Um, Very good bar. Yep. Shout out to Alejandra who makes the best tequila soda in the game. She hates when I say she like that. I hope she listens to this one day. Basically, they change the cocktail menu there every day based on what fresh ingredients they get from the market. It's oh, an nice. incredible produce market they have in Guadalajara. Um, and when I go in there, and she shows me the new menu and then I order a tequila soda from her anyway. She gets pretty pissed off. And I'm like, mate, you're so good at making these. These are amazing. Actually, one of the best things about that bar, it's I can be very particular about things sometimes. The straws. You know how like there's there's a like the cardboard paper straw has like taken over for you know for environmental reasons. It's great. It should be happening. Yeah. They're made of avocado skins, right? Uh avocado skins or pits? Yeah, maybe. Skins. Yeah, probably skins makes more sense. And they don't yeah. go soggy. No, they're awesome. Fucking fantastic. Agar- and you know what? They're making them from agave now too. Ah, excellent. Agave straws because the agave, um, what you use to um, the fibers of agave after you've pressed them to create tequila, they're very fibrous, and then you can sort of you can pulp them and turn them into paper. And mm. someone's gone, oh, well, fuck paper straws. You should do agave straws. Going nuts. Chicago's got some awesome places. 
Good right. drinking city. Mate, um, never take you to Richard's Bar? Some of my favorite, by the way, some of my favorite bars in uh, Chicago don't have trauma in them. <laughs> so Richard's Bar, the Chip Inn. Chip Inn. Archie's. Oh, there are some great shitholes in, in Chicago. But then there's some awesome ones that, you know, have trauma. Places like Sportsman's Club is an awesome bar. I loved, I loved it when we got Tromba into the Dresden in LA. Oh uh, yeah, that was some of the best shit ever. I, I took, um, we we're talking about it the other day. I took Tommy there. Yeah, um, me and LZ and Roger got shit faced there on Tromba one night. It was really fun. Took a couple of Tromba investors there. They thought it was just the best thing ever. Seeing Marty and Elaine and drinking Tromba it was very cool. That's fantastic. And then on the on the more modern side, like Thunderbolt, the guy, what Cap Ferry's doing. Uh, at Thunderbolt's really cool, good bar and um, good bar. Got, I can't, we can't, um, we can't not mention some of the homegrown favourites. So, the Lincoln, the Hotel Lincoln is my favourite pub, hands down. Yep, um, that's why you and I are probably sounding a bit dusty because we were there last night. Correct. Um, and Bad Frankie, but have you ever been there? Bad Frankie, yes, not for not for a long time actually. But I think I'm, I'm going to go there tonight. Yeah, yeah, because what Seb's done there, um, talk about craft spirits. So we've got to get Seb on the pod. I think we should. So this is the same. I've mentioned it a few times. This is the same Seb Costello who bought the first case of Tromba uh, in Australia slash the world. <laughs> um, and we're having a chat. We're out in front of the Kodiak Club, um, and we're having a chat. He's like, "I've got this idea." Um, we're going to open a bar that sells exclusively Australian-made spirits, beer and wine. And I'm like, I get the beer and wine, mate, but spirits? Like, you're going to have like nine things on your back bar. He's like, yeah, but that's okay. And we'll get you guys in too because, you know, you're technically Australian because you're Australian-owned, but we'll, you'll be the only foreign-made product in the bar. I'm like, awesome. So you'll have 10 things on the back bar. I'm not sure if you've been there recently. He's got like... Probably three hundred products on the back bar. Wow! Like the amount of distilleries that were in operation when he opened that bar um, in Australia was thirteen. Now there's over sixty. Wow! It's ridiculous. And he saw it. He saw the trend of the the local spirits and smashed it. He's the authority on Australian craft spirits in Australia because he was the he was the guy that decided to not start a brand like me, but champion other people's brands. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll go there tonight. Really looking forward to it. Probably my favorite bar in Melbourne, as far as you know, small bars go. Ripper. All right. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the Dish Pig. This has been great. <laughs> Why do you call it the Dish Pig? Uh, it's uh, it's called the Dish Pig because uh, for a couple of years I worked as a Dish Pig in a restaurant. Yep. And um, it can be one of the worst jobs you'll ever have, but also one of the most rewarding jobs you'll ever have. There's attention to detail and hard work and that kind of thing that you actually, it is drilled into you that I think you just carry with you forever. All right, Jim, thanks very much and uh, see you soon.